This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. February 11th marks the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, commemorated annually by the United Nations in recognition of the critical role that women and girls play in science and tech communities. To mark the occasion, today I'm speaking to Professor Serena Nick-Zainal, Professor of Genomic Medicine and Bioinformatics at the University of Cambridge. She was the recipient of the Joseph Steiner Cancer Research Award in 2019 and also the Francis Crick Medal and Lecture in 2022. Prof Serena, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Grill. Good morning, Shazana. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, I want to start with your career background because you, of course, started off as a physician um, and there are so many pathways in medicine, so many specializations to choose from. Why did you opt for genetics? So that's a really great question. I didn't go into genetics entirely by design. It was sort of serendipitous. So, um, you know, I started off in, in as a sort of general internal physician and I trained in lots of different areas, you know, cardiology, renal medicine, respiratory medicine, and I liked it all. Um, I didn't love anything. I didn't sort of, you know, fall in love with any of them. I mean, I was competent and I was happy, but I wasn't sort of really passionate, I think. Um, and then um, I had my first child at the end of sort of general internal training and during my maternity leave, it was really a colleague who sort of said, have you thought about clinical genetics? Because it's a it's a study of a specialist area of um, rare genetic diseases. And rare genetic diseases often give you sort of insights into how things work, how biology works. I had never even heard of the specialty. And I went to sit in a clinic just to see what it was like. So the first thing was you had a lot of time with each patient, which I really valued. You know, having been sort of an NHS doctor where you've got seven minutes, 10 minutes, bang, 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 get through the patients quickly. I got time with each patient. I got to know each patient. Um, in genetics, you try to understand the family history, the family tree. I guess I'm a bit nosy, so I quite like, quite enjoy that sort of thing. And I felt like you understood the whole person and the whole family. So I just thought this was a really privileged um, position to be in, right, to really get to know and get to know all about them and then get to know why the disease is affecting them so so much. Um, and yeah, I just found it so interesting. Um, I found it very personable and I stuck with it. It was really not by design, but it was just by, by chance, but I really loved it. Mm-hmm. So your foray into genetics was serendipitous and you've also described your journey into cancer genomic research as Similar, you could have ended up doing research on any number of genetic diseases, but the door opened for you at the Sanger Institute um, that was in cancer research. You came into this area, I mean, it was just a bit, I think, what, six years after the Human Genome Project was actually completed. So it was it was very much in its infancy, very nascent. But yet your PhD research into passenger mutations wasn't really taken all that seriously in the beginning. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why there was that blind spot. Uh, why had people not really thought to look into that area until you came along? You know, because it was so new, right? We we always believed that the human genome was largely junk. We believed that the human genome was, you know, one and a half percent coding sequence. So coding sequences actually make the proteins that make us the humans that we are. Ninety eight percent of the genome, ninety eight and a half percent of the genome, was thought to just be junk. So when I turn around and go, yeah, we can study the whole genome. We can see all the mutations in the junk DNA sequence. Everyone's looking at me, going, well, why would you want to do that? 
So I can understand where they were coming from. But yeah, I use the analogy where if you go through, yeah, it might be junk, but if you go through people's bins, you go through people's rubbish bins, you can actually learn quite a lot mm. about, you know, how they eat, what they're throwing out, you know, whether they're eating too many pizzas, this sort of thing. So, you know, I, I just thought it 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 can't really be be so pointless in, in sort of going through some of this, uh, some of these passenger mutations. Um, and somebody said to me, it was an off the cuff mess up um, sentence and or, or th- things like this often are, is it? So this person says, um, uh, well, you know, it's all, it's all just mutational detritus. It's just noise. And mm. I thought it's very little in biology and in physics. There's just noise. Everything almost always has a path, a pattern, a distribution, you know, even from the formation of, of the universe, you know, the, the way the, the, the planets are scattered, the way the stars are scattered. When you look up to the sky, it looks like a random mess of stars. But actually, there was some, you know, there was a scattering. They would all be, you know, uh, clustered around certain su- um, suns or stars. So it was the same thought that it cannot all be so random. And it was really that that drove me to to stick with this. Now, there are advantages in being sort of one of the first ones to go in this sort of space. It means there's no competition. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, you had yeah, the first mover advantage, yeah. Right, right. So I could take my time. It still took me three years to kind of do the whole thing and it wasn't, wasn't easy, okay? Because um, no one else had gone there before, so it's not easy. It was uh, sort of an interesting uh, um, uh, sort of uh, belief that, yeah, there must be something here. <laughs> so in the 10 years since your PhD was first published, how have you seen your findings translated into clinical practice? Has there actually been that, I guess, transmutation from what was theory into what can actually be practically applied? Okay, very good. So I have to applaud you for the transmutation. In that question. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, and a lot of that work really has been done by many, many other people, not not just not just me at all. You know, I was sort of fortunate to, to be one of the first ones to publish this large number of whole genomes. But since then, really, a lot of people have been working towards whole genomes. And um, but that translation to patients, that's happened really quickly. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed if you told me at the end of my PhD, when people still very skeptical, if you told me then that it's going to be in patients now, I would never have believed you. But um, countries like the UK, they started a, a genomics program. They started this, They said they were going to do whole genomes in kids with rare genetic disorders as well as in cancer. And that was 2013. So I finished my PhD in 2012. 2013, the UK government announced it. By 2018, they had collected 100,000 um, whole genomes. Other countries have started whole genome programs as well. And, uh, you know, we've heard now in Asia it started, in, in the Middle East it started. So lo- loads and loads of p- places have started doing this now, where, where it is actually in the context of patients as opposed to doing research, which is sort of, you know, still a little bit esoteric. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible that it's in the National Health Service in the public sector in the UK. Is it expensive? Is it a massive investment? Yeah, it is. But it's just been phenomenal, the, the rate at which it's gone and... The, the, con- the confidence that the government had in, in this program, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. Talk to him about that evolution, yeah? Because like you said, 10 years ago, you thought that there wouldn't really be that much interest or reception in it. People would still be very cautious. But uh, today, there's just so much activity in this space. What has triggered that? I mean, why, why the sudden excitement? Is it coming from the clinicians or is it coming from the patients? Where is this push coming from? So the push was coming from... Um, 
I think the clinical researchers initially, because the cost of sequencing came down. So in 2009, the cost of sequencing was thousands and thousands of pounds. And, you know, last year or the year before, year before last year, two companies announced that the cost of whole genome sequencing could come right down from 6,000 pounds down all the way down to 200 US dollars to 100 US dollars even. So that cost in the ability to do the experiment has come down by orders of magnitude. That's point number one. And then point number two is the ability to analyze the data. Once you produce the genome sequencing, there's so much data, you need to be able to analyze it. Actually, that is probably still the limiting factor today. Um, it's no longer the, the sequencing, it's the analysis. Um, and the analysis has become easier, so people have started to take it on um, a lot more. But is that really, is the cost and then the ability to analyze, that has accelerated things. And of course, once you start having a few patient stories out there, once one or two families, one or two cancer patients have started to see an impact, then others will start to want it as well, right? So, um, you know, there is an element in my lab where people come to us and sort of say, you know, I've got a family member who's got metastatic cancer. Would you be uh, uh, happy to sort of do analysis or sequencing of our genome? So it's, you know, that, that has started, the push has started to come from patients as well. You know, I think it becomes revolutionary when it's no longer a surprise, a bit like iPhones, right? When we first started having mobile phones, right? Um, it was kind of, ooh, exciting. But now everybody's got a mobile phone. You expect everyone to have a mobile phone. That's when it's revolutionary, right? When it's imperceptible and it's just part of your care. Um, and I think that's when we can say genomics has revolutionized medicine. It's when it's just part of your patient journey. So when, you're when you come in with a heart attack and your doctor is able to quickly look at your genome and sort of look at the results and sort of say, okay, for this patient, I can give these drugs, not these drugs. Or, you know, for this cancer patient, I'm going to be using these particular treatments and not those. It, when it's just an imperceptible part of the patient's cancer care or medical care, then it has really revolutionized medicine. Mm. I mean, the UK is one of the more advanced countries in genomic medicine, but even then there are still systemic challenges that prevent accessibility to the wider population. I think you mentioned cost being one of them. What are the obstacles that you see stand in the way of access to genomic medicine? And how would you then think about that in the Malaysian context, I suppose, which is even more nascent? What kind of policies should be considered if this is the path we want to go on in making uh, genomic care more uh, accessible and more broadly available here? So the first um, issue, I think, was getting is getting samples from the patients to um, the sequencing machine, as it were. For cancer, it's often trying to get DNA from the cancer. So often, you know, you're getting a biopsy of a patient in clinic or you're getting a piece of tumor out of a patient at surgery. In that situation, everywhere in the world, we will put a sample into something called formalin um, and uh, because it's a preservative, basically. So that is how nearly all material is stored because it just fixes the, the material and, and stops it from decomposing. But we cannot use that for whole genome sequencing. Not, not in the past, anyway. We were not able to do, use that. We had to have a fresh sample. It had to come straight from the patient. Or it had to go into a freezer. It had to go into a liquid nitrogen storage. But that's not going to be facilities that are available in all hospitals in the UK. A lot of the district hospitals are not going to have that. A lot of hospitals in Malaysia, for example, a lot of hospitals in Africa, they're not going to have that. So that is a major limiting factor, right? If the collection of material alone is problematic. You're never going to get to the genome sequencing. So, so that's problem number one. Uh, then problem number two was the cost of sequencing. That is now changing. Problem number three is doing the sequencing. Um, and in the old days, 
And I went to old days here, I only mean about 10 years ago, five to 10 years ago, everybody had their own sequencing machine. They had to have all the expertise with running a sequencing machine. You have to have enough money to buy the machine and to have all this, the team. And then you have to analyze it as well. So there were all these pockets of, um, I call them sequencing centers. People were all doing sequencing separately. It's too expensive to do that. It just is. And, you know, I think for somewhere like Malaysia, I would suggest centralized sequencing or at least two, two or three facilities only don't have them, don't have 10 because it, the machine is expensive. The expertise to run them is, is high. And then an analysis is the other big hurdle because computer science and bioinformatics is still relatively new. We don't have all that expertise. You'll find in the UK today, this is, I think, been one of our failings. We initially had a centralized bioinformatics pipeline, and now we have seven of them in the country, and we don't have the bioinformatic expertise to man seven in the UK. Mm. So I think that's, for example, a lesson to learn in Malaysia, don't have seven because it doesn't make any sense. Have one or two, you know, supporting everybody. Um, and then, and this is where the value is, because the data is the most valuable thing. One of the reasons I have been able to survive as a academic, because academia is tough, is I'm learning from data that's always accumulating. As a data accumulates, your knowledge accumulates and your ability to find and discover things increases. If data is centralized, and it can be anonymous, we don't need to know your name or date of birth or who you are, we just need to have the data. If the data is stored centrally and is stored intelligently, as a population, we can learn very, very quickly. I'm speaking to Professor Serena Nick Zainal, Professor of Genomic Medicine and Bioinformatics at the University of Cambridge. When we come back, how women in science are breaking through the glass ceiling. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. And to mark the International Day of Women and Girls in Science this month, today I'm speaking to Professor Serena Nick Zainal, Professor of Genomic Medicine and Bioinformatics at the University of Cambridge. I want to talk about um, the recognition that you've re received in your research work. So your name came to the consciousness of the broader Malaysian public with the Joseph Steiner Award, which is often described as the Nobel Prize for Cancer Research. I'm wondering if this prize has changed things for you in any way. Has it made things easier to do or, you know, is winning prizes an important part of a career in research? I would say that a lot of people believe that that is the case, that, you know, the more prizes you win and the more papers you publish, uh, the higher your profile, the more influence you will have as an academic. So I think there is some truth in that, right? Because mankind has always measured each other by these factors. Whether I like it or not is another matter. Whether I approve of how we are measured is another matter. So, you know, I was very fortunate to have won that award. And actually, I didn't... It, it was actually somebody else who sort of said to me, I think I'd like, I think you should do this. You know, I, I'd like to put you forward for this and for the, nominate you for this. Um, has it changed how I'm viewed and how I'm recognized? I think it has. I think it really has because, you know, uh, I'm an Asian woman in a very kind of white male dominated area. Cancer genomics is like nearly all men. Uh, it's a small handful of women. Um, and, um, my profile in the UK definitely was so elevated by that because it's an international prize. It's not even a UK prize. When it suddenly blew up in the newspapers, I was a bit sort of like, whoa, what is going on? Uh, 
it was wonderful, but and it was so celebrated. It was, you know, I just felt so many people were so happy. Um, and I think it was also celebrated because I had been through a bit of a tough time in 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 the UK through my career, and I had had a you know sudden shift from one institution to another. And I think a lot of people knew that I was this rising star, and then I had this rug pulled out from under me, and and I was start, still trying to keep going. And so then to win this award, I, th- I think, you know, a lot of people were like back slapping me going, oh, well done. It was sort of a sort of a triumph of, you know, difficulty over the period before. So I think there were a number of factors there that played into why it was such a big deal. It's such a big celebration for so many people. I felt so honored. I really did. Um, uh, but it wasn't just about me. It was about the situation of the times and you know, the increasing recognition of women in science. So mm. I think there were many of those factors that made it such a big deal. And speaking of that, in previous interviews, you have spoken about the difficulties of being a woman in science research, the lack of diversity at the top levels of management. I'm wondering if you've seen any shifts in the academic environment or in attitudes um, that we can take heart from when it comes to gender equality and representation in science. Are, are you more optimistic or do you think that the obstacles are still very much need to be surmounted? Uh So, you know, I am optimistic. There are changes. There are palpable changes, um, at least where I am. Um, You know, I I have seen some of those changes and people are actively pushing in that direction. So, so yes, I do see changes. Are they, are are all the issues over? Have they all been overcome? No, (laughs) we still have some way to go. Um, And I think if people start becoming lackadaisical about it, you know, we're not going to change. It's very interesting. I think there's a lot of uh, um, culture and and societal um, influence in this sort of thing. If you look at academia in Malaysia, I'm so impressed to see that there's so many heads of department who are women. That is absolutely not the case in the West. So there are differences. And I think in some ways, Malaysia is more advanced like that. But within the country that I am in at the moment, there have been changes. But, you know, there's still a long way to go. I mean, sometimes what I find harmful can be, you know, that people talk about it, but they didn't, don't act on it. Uh, that said, that said, I think in general, I, I have felt a change in the last five years. Absolutely. Mm. How do you measure that institutions or organizations are being serious in their equality and diversity aims? What uh, are the green flags, I guess, when you see what's happening in terms of that? Yes, we're progressing in the right direction. So the things that are easy to measure, you know, numbers. I mean, you know, uh, how many heads of department are men or how many are women? Um, Imperial College in London, at one point, the Department of Medicine were equal numbers of men and women. Beautiful. I don't think we've ever had that in Cambridge. I don't think we ever will. Not not for the next few years, at least. So so numbers matter uh, at the top ranks, but also numbers at all levels, right? Because then you can see the gradient and you'll be able to see that at the PhD level, there's sometimes more women than men. And then as you get to more senior levels, it just shifts. And I think that's usually a, a red flag that tells you that you've got a systemic problem. And if I think you've got to look at the numbers and be honest and sort of say, this is what the numbers look like. Because until they're staring at you, you're, it's very easy to go, oh, we're doing something about it. So I think numbers at every level matter. Um, I think that the ones that are a bit more hard to measure are sort of the, the the things that happen every day, you know, and I think that's where a lot of women, it, it's sort of, you know, a thousand cuts, you receive a thousand cuts, right? Because it's the, it's the little things that people say to you in the meetings or in the corridor or somebody's been mean to you during a presentation or whatever. It's those things that are impossible to measure. But I think 
happen. And I think that's almost part of the daily grind that wears people down. How do you tackle it? I think you've got to be able to sort of say, you know, I, I wouldn't have said that or I wouldn't or take somebody aside and say, I, you know, I don't think that was appropriate or it takes a bit of courage to do, to do that, though. Uh, and one of the things that we've got here in Cambridge is the, the band of women who are getting more senior, we're close. And when we see things, we will say something and then others will back us. So the difficulty is when you say something and nobody's backing you, but if you say something and other people kind of stand in around you, then it's a bit easier to make, to have an impact, right? When you're, when you're calling something out. So it's, it's, those are little things, I guess, hard to measure. Hard to measure, um, hard to implement as well. It really does take cultural shifts over time and just building that critical mass that will enable those types of uh, cultures to be more evident. That's absolutely right. But, uh, but having that band of people, and I think that band of people now getting bigger, that makes it easier, right? So I think there will be a, a shift, cultural shift. Um, it'll just take a little bit of time. Um, Prof. Serena, on this show and across the station, we've spoken to many Malaysian women in science that have done the country proud. But the common denominator is that they've had to go abroad to gain uh, the experience, to gain the recognition. Is there something about the environment in Malaysia that's not conducive for the best and brightest to thrive? I wouldn't be able to say because I haven't been there now for 30 years, which is terrible. Um, you know, I think there are many things in Malaysia that's actually more conducive in a crazy way. Like one of the things I've just mentioned is actually accelerating in academia, getting to the highest levels of academia, probably easier as a woman in, in Malaysia. But the, the stuff I've learned in genomics, for example, Malaysia didn't have that, right? So if you don't have that, then it's, it's impossible to learn it locally, right? So you'd still have to go abroad to do the learning and the question is, how do you make it attractive for people to return, right? And and then to retain them when 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 they return. One can, and I wouldn't be able to speak for sort of all the other um, subjects or or other other fields, but you know, in genomics, I, you know, I think you don't even need to do much to sort of create a platform and a hub with a good culture, which allows people to use skills and develop skills from anywhere in Malaysia. And that's the value of having computational genomics. You can be anywhere physically. You can be in Pinah, you can be in Penang, you can be in Sabah or Sarawak. It doesn't matter where you are. But if you have a hub, even if it's a virtual hub, where people can come, there is data and they can explore. You have data, it's like it's like a it's like a mecca, right? When you have a data, when you have a data set, which is fantastic, you will draw people to it. Genomics England in the UK, that's our centralized data repository. Yeah, there's thousands of, of academics there now, thousands of scientists from all over the world. While it feels like it's costly to set it up, once it is set up, it will be a magnet. Um, and, and it will be, you know, a real sort of center for learning potentially. But the other thing is that data is valuable. Data can be, and I, and I hate to use the term, but commoditized is the term that people a lot, a lot of people use. The reality is, if your data set is well built, well structured, there's a lot of it, it's diverse, and we have a fantastically diverse population, then you can sell access to the data. And I don't mean that in a crass way. I mean in the sell access for academic purposes. So pharmaceutical companies will pay Genomics England £200,000, £300,000 for a license to access the data and use it to learn about it. So you can cost recover even though it costs money to initially set anything up, it's like any business capital to build it up. And then after that, you can actually make money from it. So having those sorts of things will attract people back. 
and will help to build local talent. People then don't have to go elsewhere to gain that that knowledge and that experience. They can actually learn from it locally. And you know, there will be so many facets about Malaysian populations that are um, that are not available in any part of the world, right? So there will be a special niche there. You know, Prof Serena, I think it's going to take someone like you to come back and start a center of that sort. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. That was Serena Nick Zainal, Professor of Genomic Medicine and Bioinformatics at the University of Cambridge. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.